0: Hey now, welcome to Drupal Easy Podcast, episode 235. My name is Mike Anello, and on this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Nils Otterman, one of the co-authors of The Composer Project. Also, Ryan Price and I sit down for a little chat, mainly about the DrupalCon Global Chat, and all the chatter about the chat. But before we get to that, let me quickly mention some Drupal Easy training that we have coming up. Monday, August 24th, and Tuesday, August 25th, parts one and two of our Composer Basics for Drupal Developers Online Workshop. You can check that out at drupaleasy.com composer-basics, as well as on September 8th and November 10th, our two-hour professional local development with DDEV workshop. And of course, don't forget about Drupal Career Online, our flagship training program, 12 weeks, three half days a week. Next semester begins August 31st. If you want to learn more, we actually have free information webinars on July 22nd, August 12th, and August 26th. You can get more information about Drupal Career Online at drupaleasy.com slash i I'm here with one of the composer, co-founders, co-leads, uh, Nils Otterman. Nils, how are you today?
1: Hey, I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: So when you introduce yourself, which, how do you describe yourself you know, in your relationship to composer? Is like co-lead? Is that...
1: I usually go with co-author because I feel like I did do a lot of the initial work, but in the day-to-day maintenance today, I don't play that big of a role anymore. I think I have like some very specific areas that I focus on which have to do with dependency resolution um, and a few other aspects now on the version two that we're working on. Uh, but I think the main uh, day-to-day maintenance work, uh, answering support issues, dealing with all the bug reports, that's um, uh, Jordi Boggiano who's doing that these days.
0: All right. Very good. So um, as you know, the Drupal community uh, pretty much adopted Composer for use starting with Drupal 8 and the usage among Drupal developers, as far as I can tell, is just going up and up and up as as folks realize that this is really the best way to manage a code base. You know, it's it's possible with Drupal 8 and Drupal 9 to manage a code base without Composer, but it's getting more and more difficult as we progress. So with Composer 2 on the near horizon, I figured uh, it would be a good time to have you on and we can talk a little bit about the improvements that are com- coming in Composer 2. But before we get to that, I was curious about how did this Composer project get started? Did you see like a, a hole in the ecosystem or kind of what was the genesis of the project?
1: Um, so I started working on Composer uh, as a New management tool for plugins in the forum software PHPBB back in 2011. So, PHPBB has been around for quite a while. I'm sure that a lot of people still remember it, or some may even still use it today. Uh, and we were looking into uh, rebuilding the way that plugins work for the system, and at the same time, started looking into using some of the Symfony Framework Symfony components. Uh, very much a process that Drupal went to uh, more recently than PHPBB back then, um, and in that process, I got in touch with a lot of members of the Symfony community, and in particular, Jordi, who I mentioned earlier, was uh, one of them. And so the two of us together uh, decided to build a tool that might help with. Uh, at the time, it was Symfony Two was the new version. Um, the current versions are really a natural progression of that architecture. Uh, which had a concept of bundles very much like plugins that also needed to be installed so we wanted to build a tool that would solve this problem both for us with phpbb to install plugins and for symphony to install these bundles and so we ended up building a more generic tool that eventually ended up helping any php developer because it was not specifically tied to that framework or the project i was working on So when we first started, we didn't actually set up to build a tool that was generally useful to PHP developers, but more specific to our uh, projects that we were working on. And the entire PHP community, I think, has been going through that transition that you just mentioned uh, Drupal developers are going through for the last 10 years altogether now. And there's definitely all these different niches projects like drupal has like a particular set of developers that most have worked with drupal but then before then there were magento developers who went to the solution at some point or uh, people who worked with other content management systems uh, people worked with specific frameworks i think zen framework was one of the early adopters actually of composer uh, already in 2012. Um, so developers working with that or laravel developers etc so i think all these projects one after another, at some point, realize the value. Um, And I think at this point, it's just so broadly used that uh, it really just makes sense for Drupal to go through the same transition.
0: So the first release was in 2012. So was that first release, was that like a generic PHP tool release or was that still more geared towards PHP BB?
1: No, so this was a generic tool from the beginning on. I think the idea behind what we were building was originally focused on those two things, but we never built anything tied into PHPPB or specifically to Symfony. So from the very first development versions, even in 2011, before there was a new release, it's just a generic command line utility that you could use for anything. And some frameworks even started using this in 2011 before there was any kind of a release. Uh, and I think even we thought this was so unsafe to use and some people were running this in production. Uh, so it's been around a while and it was never it never ended up being specific to any particular project.
0: So in that time frame, a lot of folks were using pair correct to, to get dependencies
1: uh, pair was used widely but not to install dependencies for your project. Uh, I think, Pair was mostly used to install a couple of specific tools like PHP unit, I think at the time was commonly installed for testing purposes through Pair. And a few other people had figured out how to set up their own Pair server to serve their own files. But one of the shortcomings of Pair back then had always been the tight integration between Pair, the command line utility to install things, Pair, the server side to the command line where you install things from or where you keep your packages and pair the framework or set of libraries with a very strict set of rules around how to get in there. And so the actual pair framework or the libraries on pair that people would use were very restricted. And while I think some of them were quite widely used, um, it wasn't the kind of open platform that packages.org is today for Composer, where anybody could publish any of their packages for any framework for any specific project. And so while Pear had somewhat widespread use, it had a very different kind of use.
0: I guess what I'm trying to figure out, you know, so at the time, was Composer replacing, you know, anything or was it something that people were just dealing with manually?
1: I think it was very much most people dealing with it manually. People downloaded zip files from somewhere, copied the files to the right directory. Uh, They copied source code off of random websites. And I think, Pair was just not used for all your internal dependencies. It was used for a couple specific things. And in the wider sense, PHP just didn't have anything like that.
0: All right. So before we get to Composer 2.0, I I feel like we need to set the table a little bit so we can understand a little bit more about the improvements that are coming in 2.0. So I figure it might be a good opportunity um, for a little bit of Composer education. And, And so... Maybe you could tell us how does actual, how does Composer do its thing? Because here in the Drupal community, you know, before Drupal eight, we were used to getting like Drupal modules via the Drush command line language, which is a, a yeah. Drupal command line tool, and it was always very quick. It just downloaded the dependent, downloaded the module, put it in the right thing, and it was done. And, and Composer clearly does a lot more than just that. Um, And and it takes longer. And so folks are like, well, why isn't Composer as fast as my old tool? Um, And the answer is because Composer does a lot more. So can you talk a little bit about like, what is the process? And let's just do something simple. Like when we do a Composer require on some dependency, there's a lot that Composer does to Figure out if, if you know what the right version to use. If there's any uh, dependency conflicts, like how does that work internally from a somewhat high level?
1: Yep, sure. Let's let's go through that process. Um, so I think the first thing is to break down a bit. What does a composer require actually do? And composer require, in our terms, is really more a shortcut command. In that it first goes and edits your composer.json file to just add a new line to require something new, and then it runs a composer update. So the core two commands that composer really consists of are composer update and composer install and other commands like composer require or composer remove really are just shortcuts that edit the composer JSON file before then triggering one of these other commands. So the purpose of composer update is to take your composer.json file to then download metadata about packages that are available, what versions they have, what requirements they have that you may need for your project and to generate a composer.log file. So by default, it'll download this information from packages.org. When you run a Drupal uh, project, there's usually the the Drupal, I think it's packages.drupal.org, right? Right. The repository for Drupal packages. And it gets the metadata for all the packages that you've listed in your require and your require dev statements. Um, so a list of what versions are available, who are the authors, like that kind of metadata to display the packages, but also, most importantly, their requirements. And Composer then uses this to do the step that we call resolving dependencies, which is to uh, figure out what is the set of versions of all these dependencies that I need to install in order to best fulfill your requirements. So that means typically if you specify a version range, like I want a one point asterisk version, we try to install the latest release of that particular package. But if that particular package then itself has a requirement for another package, which your project also depends on, but in a lower version, then that may not be compatible. So we're going to have to install a different version. And so this is what's dependency resolution to figure out a uh, solution to match all these different requirements that you have. So typically, an easy way to speed up Composer or simplify Composer is actually to list more specific requirements in your Composer.json file. That only helps so far because, of course, it also matters how specific the requirements in your libraries are because they require things and in turn those things require things. And if at the same time, all of those become too small, then there isn't any overlap anymore and it becomes more difficult to even find a particular set of dependencies. So it's not necessarily easy to find the right path there. Um, But for your own projects in your composer.json, if you require specific versions rather than a large range that already limits the number of versions that composer even has to look at, uh, consider while it's resolving dependencies. Once it's done that, it generates a composer.log file. And that is really just a, a list of all the versions of all the dependencies that you have and their dependencies and their dependencies and so on. Just a list of all these package names, their versions, the metadata. And then the composer install command actually just reads this file, the log file, and downloads those packages and sticks them by default into the vendor directory Um, in a particular project. I'm actually not sure how this works in Drupal. I believe Drupal also has like a custom installer which sticks them in a different directory, which is more like where traditionally Drupal modules would have gone.
0: Yeah, we use Composer installers. Right,
1: exactly. So there's like a mechanism, it's kind of Composer plugins and specifically Composer installers that basically allow you to define custom directories that they get installed to. But the key part is Composer install downloads your source code and it extracts it into the correct directory in your project.
0: So that seems like the easy part, right? Like the composer, the the composer install seems like the easy part because by then everything's defined. It knows where to go to get the the, the code. It knows where to put it.
1: Com- computationally, that's kind of the easy part. Uh, in terms of performance, that's actually also uh, typically a problem. Like that that part can take quite a while if it has to like download all those files, uh, extract all those zip files. Uh, so performance wise, that too may take quite a bit of time, but In terms of complexity inside of Composer, it's a very simple, straightforward process. And so this aspect also usually does not require a lot of memory uh, because it's very much just iterating over that list of packages and taking a few steps.
0: So where is, you know, I'm aware and I've run into this sometimes where I'm doing a a Composer install or even a Composer create project, which I know in turn calls Composer install. Um, You know, sometimes I'll hit an out of memory uh, error is that uh, that's not on the install part of it that's on the on the update part of it and is that because of all the metadata that it has to bring down
1: that is a, a very large part of that so one of the things that you can imagine is that if you know if you require a range of versions, we're gonna have to download all the metadata for those versions because we have to figure out what requirements they have, which of those versions can be installed. And then for each of those, we have to check those requirements, we have to download all the metadata for those and so on. So it's kind of a recursive process. Now, the problem with that is that it's not just a recursive process um, because or rather when you try and resolve this, it's not straightforward, you just pick the highest version and then for that one, you check again and you check again, et cetera, Uh, because there are kind of cycles in this where one package can define a conflict with another version. So if you pick a particular version of some dependency and then later for another dependency, you pick a different version that may actually conflict with the previous decision the solver made. And then you can't install the version that you previously picked and now you have to kind of start over. Um, And so this process gets a bit complicated. Um, Additionally, Composer supports keywords like replace and provide. Uh, which are very useful mechanisms that allow you to uh, kind of create a alternative package that replaces another one. So if you have a dependency on uh, one particular library, uh, somebody else can publish one that is, has a compatible API and says it replaces this one. And so if you require that one, um, it still fulfills all, all of your, your dependencies requirements of the original library because it has a compatible interface, but you're using the other implementation. Uh, and features like that make this whole process of figuring out which versions are compatible quite a bit more complex. Now, in terms of memory use, the first part is what you said, we have to download these versions. And that was also fine back in 2012, but over time, the amount of releases for each of these packages that are commonly used uh, you know, has just been growing and growing and growing. So the amount of metadata that we actually have to load uh, has been increasing over time as well. The next step is that in order to actually do this dependency resolution stuff that I keep talking about, um, what we use there is called a SAT solver or a Boolean satisfiability solver. And that's basically a process that takes a Boolean expression, like something you would stick in an if clause in PHP, Uh, which we generate from all this metadata, and it tells us which of the variables would have to be true or false. True meaning I have to install this particular version of that package, false meaning I don't need that particular version of that package. Now, the more versions are involved in this resolution process, the bigger this Boolean expression gets. And unfortunately, uh, some of those uh, dependencies are kind of an exponential growth thing. So for each version that we add, the amount of uh, internal rules that we have to generate to represent this expression uh, grows many times over. And as a result, this representation, which is then used as the input for actually running the solver, which is pretty efficient and fast, uh, uses a huge amount of memory. So a lot of the performance of Resolving dependencies uh, is not lost actually resolving the dependencies, but kind of generating a memory structure, which can then be used to do that.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm following you, but that, that is a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not something that, you know, you have to deal with on a typical Drupal project.
0: So it seems to me that the way to increase performance and memory usage is to somehow limit the... Number of versions that whose metadata has to be loaded into the solver.
1: Yeah, that's very much one of the key things that what we looked at in in version two. So I think in version one, what we've been doing for years now. I mean, we keep working on performance, but it's mostly about reducing the amount of memory one of these particular rules takes up by a few bits by doing some kind of mini mini optimization, uh, trying to somehow you know shave off a few bytes here and there, but. In Composer 2, we're we're making some BC breaks, which allows us to make some bigger changes. And so we can really refactor the code to allow us to do things like that, to really uh, come up with a new process that reduces this number of packages, versions that are even considered. Um, And so that's one of the big steps that we've taken is that um, we've refactored the code that actually does the dependency resolution to uh, first download all the metadata uh, and run kind of an optimization step on that which reduces the number of versions that we then really have to consider as far as possible already, uh, based on the information that we have from your Composer JSON, um, that we have from taking kind of like a first glance at all the dependencies, you can make some conclusions, like you know that certain things do not get replaced. You know that um, a particular version is not required by any of your other dependencies, so you can kind of delete those. Uh, and you kind of go through and try and reduce this amount of versions that you even have to consider when then resolving dependencies.
0: So that's you know as you just said that seems like that's a big part of the improvements coming in Composer 2, as far as performance and memory usage. Um, let's move away from performance and memory usage for a moment. What else can we expect in Composer two, as far as you know? I don't want to call them flagship features, but but kind of bigger things that that folks will notice.
1: So, I think overall, our main goal is to not have a lot of changes that users will notice because um, we think we very much think of Composer as this type of utility that you want to just keep working. Uh, you're not looking forward to big new features where you have to change your views and modify a lot. Um, so, there aren't really any major uh, new features uh, apart from the overall improvements to performance. Um, I think kind of apart from what I was just talking about, about the, the internal improvements, what users will notice just in terms of um, interaction is that we also worked on error reporting a lot. Um, so as part of refactoring this dependency resolution, one thing that we actually worked on is the error output that it generates when something goes wrong. Because um, in Composer, you know, if you run into a conflict between packages, it can be pretty difficult at times to figure out exactly where did this process get wrong, uh, go wrong. And I think we, made a big step forward in making those error messages a lot more comprehensible. Uh, And then there are smaller new features, like uh, there's a new option for Composer Update that allows you to ignore specific platform packages. So that makes it easy for you to test your project on PHP 8, for example, um, without uh, removing all the requirements for extensions and changing the PHP requirements. I think these small things are certainly useful, but there's not that that one big thing that everybody has been waiting for.
0: Well, I think the performance and memory usage improvements are that one big thing.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, And I think in terms of performance, there's another thing that we haven't really talked about, which is all the changes that we did to networking. So like I mentioned in the beginning, even the installation of packages can take quite a while. So one thing that Composer 2 does is paralyzes all the uh, network requests it makes. Uh, It makes use of HTTP2 uh, in order to uh, do a lot of requests over a single connection at the same time. Uh, And this kind of solves the other aspect that's been a problem uh, where downloading the metadata originally and then later downloading the files has actually been quite slow in some cases and should improve that uh, quite a bit as well.
0: So have you talked about in general, like what can users expect as far as performance gains, you know, in just maybe layman's terms, can, can folks expect, you know, an average project with maybe, you know, 10 direct dependencies, can folks expect, you know, composer performance to be twice as much, twice as fast, or we're we not talking about that yet until there's a final release.
1: So the problem with that is that it's it differs so much depending on your dependencies that it's difficult to really give generic numbers. Uh, so from what we've seen people report so far, it's anywhere from a 20% improvement to an 80% improvement, like 80% improvement, meaning it's five times as fast as before. Um so. It's difficult to give you a number that will make sense on your particular project because it very much depends on the complexity of your dependency tree. Um, And that can be simple even if your project only requires one or two things, if those things in turn have complex dependencies. Um, So I have trouble giving you specific numbers on this, but I think in all cases, the improvement will be very significant.
0: You know, from a Drupal standpoint, folks that use the, the the Drupal core recommended project template, you know, we're starting off with, I didn't even know how many, maybe 30 direct, you know, 30, not, maybe not direct dependencies, but 30 dependencies just for Drupal core. Um, so, you know, I, I think any performance gains are going to be more than welcome uh, in this right. community. <laughs> so I think
1: for like some other projects, I've seen some. I mean, you reported you ran out of memory, so that means you're probably ending up using at least like something like two gigabytes of memory. Because I think by Composer by default sets that to one point five gigs. Um, you could definitely expect a fifty percent reduction in memory use. Um,
0: wow, that's amazing. And
1: and potentially more than that. Um, We are still working on some of these things, so we're kind of hoping to even get a little bit more out of that before we do a a final release in Composer 2. But even with the current version uh, that you can already test with the Composer self-update dash dash preview, uh, you already get huge gains like that.
0: Yeah, and that's one thing I wanted to mention. The ability to to move up to Composer 2 with self-update dash dash preview and then roll back to the latest version um, makes it just crazy easy to to play with Composer 2, that the current alpha. Which
1: I think it's also something that is very risk-free because it's something you just run as a test on your development machine. Like it doesn't break your code or anything. Like it's just a, you locally check what happens, and then you can just go back to what you had before, or like your lock file is committed anyway, so you just reset it to your original state. Um, So we really appreciate anyone actually giving this a try and reporting any potential bugs that show up uh, as part of this dual release to us. Uh, But at the same time, we do get the impression that it's already extremely stable uh, and it's mostly still in an alpha release because we do want to make a couple more changes which uh, may potentially still break backward compatibility for some of the plugins, but that should not have any major impacts on your usage of Composer on regular projects.
0: Is there a goal for when you'd like to get uh, a 2 tagged and released?
1: I don't think we have a particular time frame in mind. I'm pretty sure it's going to happen this year at some point still, but it very much depends on uh, you know how many problems do we still run into, uh, How soon can we get the the rest of those optimizations done? Um, so there's no specific time frame that I can tell you at this point.
0: All right. fair enough. so let's wrap this up. I want to ask you about private packages, which is packages.com. Um, obviously you know packages.org is the canonical repository for um, for composer uh, projects but packages.com um, it, it goes by private packages and I, I get the feeling that pr- packages.com is what you and Jordy use to you know it, you know fund this whole thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's really what's made a big major development step like Composer 2 mm-hmm. possible So that we started Private Packages a few years back um, as a solution to uh, get a Composer repository much like packages.org but for your internal use. Um, so it's interesting for companies that rely on Composer that need better availability than what they get from packages.org um, that want to be independent of open-source developers hosting off packages. So the way that packages.org works is actually that it only hosts the metadata and all the downloads come from wherever the open-source developer decided to host them. And so if you want to be sure that if that developer decides to shut down their site or something like that, you continue to be able to install your site with the latest versions that you were using, Uh, then having your own repository that mirrors those packages is a great idea. Um, And private packages is a great solution that offers just that. And through this service, which provides additional value to companies that rely on Composer, we finance the development of Composer these days. And so both Jordi and I can actually spend significant amounts of our work hours on Composer uh, because a lot of companies in the PHP world are uh, paying for this service that we offer.
0: So I'll mention real quick, pricing starts at 14 um, euros a month, and that's uh, for a single private repository. Uh, so the way that it works
1: is actually there's a base price of 49 euros a month for the cloud plan. And then it's uh, an additional 14 euros a month for if you have more than three developers. Yeah, so the 14 euros is a per user price. Uh, the number of repositories that you have, the number of packages is unlimited on all our plans. Um, so it doesn't matter how many packages you have, um, all we do base this on is the number of developers that actually end up installing packages through the service, because uh, that's a much better estimate in our experience of how much, uh, you know, resources we actually have to provide uh, for your company to use the service.
0: All right, thank you. Yeah, I was misreading that, that the pricing page. Apologize <laughs> for that. All right, and that's at Packagist.com. Well, Mills, thank you so much for your time and your contributions to the open source community. I mean, it, it, it's a wonderful tool, and I know uh, us Drupal folks are a little bit late to the party, but um, you know, I, I, I don't know how... Um, like, looking back at, you know, before, I was using you know Composer with Drupal 8, like managing all this... Um, before Composer. And, and now it's, I don't know how we ever kind of lived without it. So thank you very much for all your contributions.
1: Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, it was a great time being here.
0: We recently made a few additions to the Drupal Easy podcast. Uh, the podcast is now automatically available on YouTube if you choose to listen there. And also, we've added an audio transcript, which you can access at each podcast page on DrupalEasy.com. We'd love to hear your feedback about these and other changes you would like to see us make. Feel free to drop us a line. Just use the contact form at DrupalEasy.com. I'm here with Liberator. Missing the last vowel, Ryan Price. How are you?
2: I am doing so good. I am so excited about DrupalCon or should I say Drupal ChatCon.
0: I feel like I should just sit back and mute myself and just let you ramble on for a little while <laughs> cuz I feel like you're super excited about this. You know,
2: if you had asked me 2 weeks ago like what do you think is going to happen? I would be like, I don't know. I mean, there's going there's, nobody's going to be hugging, you know, like I'm not going to get to smile at anybody like I feel like there are certain things that I come to expect out of a DrupalCon, and I was really like ambivalent about this whole virtual thing. I was like, "Is it going to be good?" Say, so, like I I have had uh, for the last seven months now two small children in my house, so I haven't really been able to attend any of the virtual events. I think you might have been able to check out a few, including very recently Drupal Camp Asheville, right?
0: Right. And Asheville also used the Hopin platform. So um, it was great practice for me for this week. And um, Asheville was a, you know, it, it it's a great event in person. And I think you're having the same feeling now that I had last week where, all right, this Hopin platform, this virtual event is not going to be, a, I hate to say it's coming at it from a negative way, but not as bad as I thought. Let me, let me say it as it's better than I thought it was going to be.
2: Oh, so much better. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so you know, I had I had my doubts before the event actually started. Right, um, I'm part of a company that is one of the sponsors. We have a booth, FFW, and they were asking me to jump in and you know, like sort of hold some lead conversations during the booth time about sort of some different topics like, you know, layout builder, paragraphs, and then there's this other tool, Acquia Cohesion, that I've gotten a certification uh, recently, Acquia Cohesion. So, uh, you know, I'm sort of uniquely positioned as somebody who knows something about this sort of new Acquia platform, but I've done some Drupal 8 site building stuff. And I actually haven't worked a whole, whole lot with layout builder. I've sort of like looked over a lot of people's shoulders and and watched a lot of videos, and I've been watching every session I can during DrupalCon. Um, So anyway, you know, I was was thinking like, well, how is this going to go? Like I've given virtual presentations before, but I didn't really understand how sort of amazing the chat is during the DrupalCon here. Um, The fact that the chat is just automatically open as soon as you join any session means that you know you're in you're in a session i was in a session yesterday with 440 people in it and usually that means that you're sitting you know cheek by jowl with a bunch of other people there's people sitting on the floor there's people standing in the doorway you know there's maybe there's an overflow room somewhere where people are trying to catch whatever the presenter is saying in this case everyone has their own personal space and they're comfortable and they're watching the presentation, but they've also got the chat window open. And I wouldn't say that it's like 100% of the people are chatting, but a good percentage of people are, are in there asking questions, replying to each other, bringing up points and counterpoints to what the presenter is saying. I saw a little bit of it during the Drupal or during the Dries note, which I, didn't ha- I haven't actually gotten to finish watching it yet. I've watched about the first half of it and I got up to the point where I was able to watch a few minutes yesterday. Uh, So, so I have some thoughts there, but uh, the chat, the chat is the killer app of this event.
0: Okay. So (laughs) I, I I was just going to let you go until you, until you ran out of steam there. So let me, let me hop in here. I, Completely agree. I think the chat is the unexpected hero of this event. I think everybody that, well, that's not really fair for me to say, but the the, the meta chat or the chat about the chat in the chat has been, <laughs> from my perspective, overwhelmingly positive. Yeah. And I guess if you don't like the chat, you're probably not going to chat about it. So, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't seen anything on Slack about how the chat sucks or anything like that. It hasn't devolved into anything horrible. It's always been, you know, in all the sessions I've been in, it's always been extremely positive and helpful and um, it was downright fun. Um, The, but let's, let's, let's step away from the chat for a second. Sure. And so let's talk about, I think the one thing that the Hopin platform doesn't have that for our community, and I don't think it's completely unique to our community, but it maybe a little bit, is the ability to kind of quickly spin off video chats with a group of people, right? right. You can go into hop in and do a one-on-one video chat, but, you know, hallway chats are always kind of cool where one or two people start talking and then two or three other people show up. And being able to recreate that virtually somehow, I think would be, you know, a big win. Um, you know, there is like the global event chat that's going on, and um, you tend to see, you know, the folks that you know in you know sessions or or, or chatting, like maybe like in in one of the um plenary sessions or something like that. But you know, we're all kind of craving like this this human contact, right? Mm-hmm. Because we've all been holed up for know, four or five months, whatever it is now, and you know, while the chat is great and it it does kind of scratch part of that itch, and then some of the some of the um, the presentations where you see familiar faces, that's also you know you know is a, something that's you know affecting the a positive part of my brain. Um, and even like last night with trivia, you know, uh, my team and I we spun up our own Zoom chat, our own Zoom room at the same time that we were watching the hop in. Oh, nice! Yeah. You know, and so it was a bit of a, it was a lot like trivia night where there was just too many people talking at once.
2: You have a table side conversation.
0: Yeah. But it was, it was great. Cause you know, you got to like hang out and see video and and, and talk with people that, you know, you would, I wouldn't say normally only see at a DrupalCon, but that you'd probably be hanging out, hanging out with at the DrupalCon. Yeah. So sessions.
2: Sessions are really, really interesting this year. Um, I was trying to explain to somebody, I'm like, I think there are technically a few lesser number of sessions, but not a whole lot. Like they're spaced out more. So like it's happening over the course of 12 hours instead of eight hours. So maybe it's the same number, but there's just fewer happening at a given time. But then there's 15 minute breaks between everything. So it gives you a chance to like get up and make a coffee and, you know, do whatever sorts of things you have to do you know, answer your emails and then go back.
0: I guarantee that most people are attending more sessions than they normally do because I'm going to go back, you know, unbelief, not unbelievably, but I'm gonna go right back to the chat because you can sit at, you you can be in a session and still have a quote unquote hallway conversation in that chat.
2: Right. It's like the, the, the five minutes you would have after the session is over you know, it's happening during the session. It's really interesting.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, literally all day yesterday, all day today, I mean, I'm doing some work um, and I'm kind of multitasking, but I always have a session going. And if it's a session that I'm really interested in, I'm not working on watching, participating in the chat, but I don't think there's been a a time where I've been sitting at my desk and I don't have a session open since, you know, DrupalCon Global started. Yeah. So, the future.
2: The future. Yeah, I mean, I guess we if we're going to keep this short, let's, let's jump right into the future. I definitely have some feature requests for Hopin. I mean, I think you've already called out one of them is like sort of like an ad hoc conversation. Um you know, coming from somebody who's watched a couple of the things that happen at the at the presenter booths, there is some of that sort of organic conversation stuff going on there. A few of the The sponsors have sort of figured out that the killer app for hop in in the sponsor area is being able to do group conversations and inviting people to join via video and, you know, ask a couple of questions or give a couple of impressions and then sign off again. So um, I have seen some of that going on, but, you know, not everyone is always comfortable in sort of like, sponsor space to, to have those kinds of conversations. You know, sometimes you want to talk about something private or something very specific to your business and you can't like edit out the details to make it suitable for public consumption. Um, but so yeah, that sort of like group video chat or group video chat space or something would be interesting. Um, I think a lot of people are, have gotten spoiled by the chat. On apps like Slack and you know Teams and Discourse and all that kind of stuff like that. Um, so you know maybe more robust chat features would be nice at some point. But you know like really what we've got right now is working pretty well. Um, but I would like to see I would like to see in-person Drupal events come back. I, I still think there's a place for those. But I would also like to see this this exact event happen at least once a year. I I would, I would keep paying money to do this.
0: Exactly. Yeah, no, completely agree. This, this seems to me, and I've seen discussions. I think it was during the Dries, the Q and a with Dries earlier today. I've seen discussions about, I think someone asked Dries if this is going to become like an annual thing. And, you know, he obviously no one knows. So, so he's not sure. Um, But the chat, in the chat, there's discussion. Well, our future Drupal, you know, in-person Drupal cons Do those become hybrid events where they're in person, but then they're still broadcast via hop in so that people who can't attend in person can attend via hop in, or should it be a purely virtual event where no one's there, No one is, you know, no one's in person anywhere. Um, personally for me, just on, you know, my, my, my initial reaction to that is, I think it should be purely virtual.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: in addition, this should be in addition to a DrupalCon North America and or a DrupalCon Europe. That, that's my been, personal feeling as well. Yeah, yeah, I don't think a hybrid is going to achieve. I think it's it's too many moving parts.
2: Well, and it creates a second class citizen. Either the online attendees our first class or the in-person attendees are first class. I'm assuming it would end up being the weighted towards the in-person attendees. Right. If there were a hybrid, but you know, if, if Hopin is the platform and it's used the way it's being used right now, someone's going to get left out of the, the event by not being on one or the other. Um, And it, there is, there is a, a, a good amount of overhead of being at a live event that Hopin just sort of like completely delete. So, you know, like you don't have to walk from room to room. You don't have to figure out where lunch is, you know, if you've missed the time for coffee or, you know, if you need to get up to do something urgent during a session, like you're not being rude and like tripping over people. Like there's, there's so many things about doing a virtual event. Like I think virtual events should stay. I think that having them happen on the global scale is also a really good thing, uh, you know. Maybe some of the the more like subject specific events, like D four D or um, Gov Camp or uh, what are some of the other? What's the ones that happen in Europe? Uh, Designer Days is that what it's called?
0: Oh, Drupal Camp London is a big event,
2: right? But some some of the more like subject specific ones, I think those subject specific things would really really benefit from a virtual. Platform versus an in-person
0: one. Dev days, you're thinking?
2: Yeah, so there, you know, there have been some that are like more design-specific or more, um, you know, different different sorts of like disciplines or different sort of like micro communities. Like a nonprofit summit, something like that, would be great as a virtual event.
0: So Ryan, let's wrap up this discussion with a bit from the Drees note. Yeah. So as Dries is apt to do, he likes to use the Dries note as an opportunity to set out a vision for the next year or so for the Drupal project, and this year was no different. And he identified five initiatives that he would like to see the community take up. So why don't you tell us about those five initiatives and uh, you know, what are your thoughts?
2: Sure. So um just really quickly, I'll read through the list. He talked about having sort of like a, a front-end JavaScript that could deal with the menu system, um, making automated updates polished and working. Um, making sure that we get a new front-end theme so that the out of the box experience is, you know, as good as can be and sort of like includes all the modern, bells and whistles, and making the -the out-of-the-box experience better. So sort of like those two, I guess, sort of go a little bit hand-in-hand. And then um, there's sort of like general Drupal 10 readiness.
0: Right. So let's talk about the JavaScript menu thing.
2: This is one of those ones that as soon as you bring it up, people start pulling out their, their six shooters, and they're like ready to talk, Right.
0: What he said to me, at least, made a lot of sense, because I am not a JavaScript front-end developer. I have a passing knowledge at best. Um, But I am aware that there was an effort, there has been an effort to reactify, for lack of a better verb, the back end of Drupal. Um, But it turned out that it it was this project that just kept on growing and growing, and it was difficult to kind of wrap your, your arms around. So... What Dreese, you know, it doesn't. It's not that it sounds like, but what he basically stated was, we need to redefine the scope. We and so he proposes that the initiative be limited to, you know, providing um, the necessary uh, uh, APIs so that different JavaScript frameworks, and he identified both React and Vue, can be used. Um, and then he he and this was kind of a surprise to me i don't know if it was a surprise to folks who 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 you know build these javascript front ends um, but he identified the menu system as this is a particular pain point is you know exposing menus and everything that goes along with menus to a front end to a javascript front end so he said well let's let's start there let's limit this to being able to you know, expose menus along with, you know, all of the access control and, and everything that goes along with it to, um, you know, API that both React and Vue can consume. So I thought that was a pretty smart way of going about it. You know, when a project gets, you know, when a problem becomes too big, you have to break it up into smaller chunks. And knowing that they're, they're, had been just a ton of discussion, you know, in the past about Angular or React. What do we use? And he's kind of deciding that, not really deciding, but proposing that let's not choose. Let's just make sure it works well with, you know, multiple. And he identified, you know, React is, and Vue as a good place to start. Did you kind of, was your takeaway kind of the same as, as what I just said? Well, yeah, and and this,
2: some some of these is going to be more like what my reaction is to the headline than the whole article, because... <laughs> I haven't gotten to finish watching it yet. But I I think menu makes a lot of sense because if you look at some of the other systems that we have in Drupal, um, you know, like for example, content-based stuff, that's, that's an area where you could really diverge really quickly and even just in sort of like what's currently popular, like no two sites are building their content out the same. You know, and and a lot of the things that are doing a decoupled model, you know, that gets really complicated really quickly. But if you are going to use Drupal's menu system, uh, not a lot of other things interact with Drupal's menu system. Like it is a fairly standalone system. But it has like really deep hooks into Drupal, like you said, like access control And you know, being able to show different menu items for different users and and different routes for different users and different roles and
0: right. One of the things that Dries mentioned was that because it's a particularly particularly thorny issue, solving that is going to unlock a lot of other things that can then more easily be made available to front end systems.
2: And and it's it's one thing that, you know, pretty much any website needs. Like, you know, you you could make a case Well, like, well, what about doing something around users and user profiles? It's like, there are a large number of websites that don't want users to log in. Or if they do let users log in, maybe they use a totally different system for logging in. So it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to like make that the first thing that you tackle. You know, you could be like, okay, well, what about blocks? I mean, I think for a little while talking about the admin interface for blocks was, you know, uh, on the, on the table, but then now that we have something like layout builder it's like well now people are going to be doing blocks in a totally different way than they have been for the last almost 20 years right so it's like there's a lot of there's a lot of yes but with those other things but with menu not to say there are no challenges but i think it's a good it's a good complete problem that has boundaries (laughs) that has boundaries
0: exactly all right, I think this is a good place to wrap things up for now. Sure. So uh, let's do that, and then let's um, we'll record another one of these uh, after DrupalCon Global ends, and then we'll get this one out uh, just as soon as we can. So thanks a lot for your time, Mr. Price. Thank you, Mr. Mike. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard on the podcast, you can always subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Miro. If you're just a casual listener, you can always check us out on both Stitcher and now on YouTube. If you have an idea for a topic or a future guest, please drop us a line at drupalizzi.com contact or leave us a voicemail. In the U.S., area code 321-396-2340. Thanks for listening.